I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going to cover these verses from 7 all the way down to verse 19 this morning. The topic of uh, Christian discipleship has attracted a lot of attention. And uh, just to kind of prove that, this week I went on to ChristianBook.com and searched the word discipleship just to see what I would find. I discovered 200 pages worth of resources, books and study guides and so on. Notice I said 200 pages, not 200 books, but 200 pages full of books available on the topic of discipleship. And many of them recent. Among the more recent books, I found titles like this, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Transforming Discipleship, Real Life Discipleship, and Fruitful Discipleship. And that's just scratching the surface. There's hundreds and hundreds, thousands of more. And there's information on what discipleship is all about. There's uh, how to make disciples, as well as all kinds of books and resources on kind of niche ideas about how to handle some certain aspect of discipleship. Well, there are, of course, various kinds of curriculum that are, you know, classes or uh, teachings on the fundamentals of the faith and scripture for new believers. But you might be surprised to learn that this is nothing new. If you go back to the first two centuries, really the second century AD, the early church developed what it called the catechumenate. It comes from the word catecheo, means to teach or to instruct. And it was a teaching program designed for individuals who were joining the church through baptism. And so even in the second century, they were working through kind of a curriculum. And the whole program took between two to three years. And you had prospective members who would come and they would be interviewed. And that was the first stage of the catechumenate. It was an interview with a church member. And they would ask all kinds of questions. And some of them had to do with your occupation and whether or not it was compatible with the Christian faith. You know, there was obviously uh, in the ancient Roman Empire many careers that couldn't, couldn't combine with Christian belief and practice. Well, if the prospective member passed this first interview process, he would ins- receive private instruction from a believer, and that was the second stage. It dealt mostly with Christian living issues, how to, how to live a holy life in a polluted world. The catechumenate would be subjected to what was called the scrutiny It was, again, an interview where they would be asked about all areas of their Christian life. Not only would they abstain from sin, but very pointed questions about what are you doing to serve widows and orphans? What are you doing to serve those less fortunate? What are you doing in in the church, etc.? When they advanced to the third stage, it was more serious doctrinal instruction. You'd be taught the foundations of all the doctrines of Scripture. Finally, you'd be approved for baptism. And there was a big process to this. Usually it was on Easter Sunday. You would be welcomed into the church and there would be a big baptismal service. Well, I think if we survey Scripture itself, we notice that discipleship is a key concept. After all, we're called to Make disciples. That was the last command Jesus gave before he left earth. Well, what does that mean? Does it mean meeting for accountability with somebody who will ask difficult questions? Does it mean enrolling in some kind of a discipleship class? 
Sometimes we'd use this word disciple and we turn it into a verb. We say, I'm being discipled or I am discipling someone. Well, what does that mean? How does one make a disciple and what does a disciple even do? Well, I think as we study the Gospel of Mark, this comes to the surface because Mark is a very helpful book in this regard. Besides lifting up Jesus and making him the central character, the second biggest theme in the, the Gospel of Mark is discipleship. And we get it a lot through the actual disciples themselves as we see how Jesus instructed them and taught them and led them. So if we want to understand what discipleship is all about and what what it involves, it's wise of us to look at the Gospel of Mark. And just to lay the groundwork for today, because again, this is Discipleship 101. This is the basics. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? Let's say it like this. A disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ who embraces obedience to Jesus while actively multiplying himself in the life of others. So a lifelong follower of Jesus, somebody who is committed to Christ, who embraces obedience, and in turn is multiplying himself and others, making disciples. Again, that's a big picture definition. But how? How does this happen? Can you give me more detail on discipleship? Well, I think the Gospel of Mark does. In particular, I want to draw our attention to verses 7 through 19 of chapter 3. Actually, let's back up for a moment to verse 6. We left off our study last time with the Pharisees plotting. And we really see three groups starting in verse 6 all the way down to 19. First of all, we have those who foment against Christ. They're filled with anger. They're almost foaming at the mouth with their hatred of Jesus. Look in verse 6. Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So you have those who hate Christ, who foment against him. Then we have those who fiddle with Christ, who simply are curious about Jesus. We see them in verses 7 through 12. They're the crowds. They, they're interested. They're curious about Jesus. They may even come to Christ looking for some benefit, for some gain for themselves. But finally, we see not only those who foment and those who fiddle, but those who follow Jesus in verses 13 through 19. And it's them that we're going to learn the most valuable lessons of discipleship. As we study this passage together, I want to point out four lessons on discipleship that emerge for us here. Number one, lesson number one, following Jesus requires genuine commitment. Following Jesus requires genuine commitment. There's a lot of places in the New Testament which talk about discipleship, and most often it is connected with the cost. Following Jesus is not a casual event. It involves an unwavering commitment to Christ in all of one's life. So we ought to ask the question as we come to this text, am I really committed to living in fellowship with Christ and walking the path that he has marked out? How committed am I to this whole matter of following Jesus? There are many people who have a superficial interest in Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, several individuals ask about following Jesus. 
One of them said, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus warned him, saying, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, I know you're excited, but count the costs. Are you ready to live the life that the Son of Man lives? Somebody else in that same passage came to the Lord and said, Lord, let me go in first and bury my father. Then I will follow you. Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead. Kind of a a cryptic way of saying it. But again, another man came and said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first bid my family farewell. Jesus said, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, those, those statements from Jesus might sound a little harsh. But yet, it really highlights this point that commitment to Christ must come first. Lackluster commitment is not discipleship. Back in Mark 3, we see this in the tenor of the crowds that are following Jesus. Look at verse 7. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him. There's that word. They followed him. And from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, wherever they went, saw him, fell down before him, and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. And he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. This basically... Verses 7 to 12 is a summary statement of Jesus' ongoing ministry in Galilee. He's constantly surrounded by needy crowds pressing in on him. People are excited about Jesus. They want to see him. They're seeking him out for healing and deliverance. But I don't think it would be correct to call these people disciples. Even though it says in verse 7 that they followed him. See, there's a difference between following Jesus around and following Jesus. The crowds followed him around. They they wanted to be where Jesus was. They, They were interested in Jesus, but they weren't really followers. It's kind of like the difference between hearing and listening. We do understand there's a pretty big difference between those two. I hear a lot of things. I can't say that I always listen. In fact, sometimes Ashley will remind me of something she's told me, and then do I realize, hmm, I guess I wasn't listening the first time, because it only just now is registering. The same is true with following Jesus. You can follow him, and then you can follow him. Which Which are you doing? Again, the crowds have sort of this superficial interest. They follow Jesus without following him. At the beginning of the section, verse 7, the Bible says Jesus withdrew with his disciples. By the way, we see that on occasion with Jesus. He's withdrawing to a mountain, withdrawing to a quiet place to pray. See, his priorities are with the Father. And yet, the crowns are always around, always drawing Jesus out into the open. And as usual, the crowds found him here. Notice, by the way, the wide range of places they come from. They're from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, from Tyre and Sidon. 
These are interesting geographically, culturally, and uh, religiously. Obviously, crowds from Galilee were coming. Galilee was mostly farmers and fishermen, kind of average Joes. They were the people who were closest to Jesus in terms of location. Then it says people from Jerusalem and Judea were coming. Jerusalem was considered the cultural elite. It was the capital. The, the, all the important people in Israel lived there. So not only do the, the working class people are coming out to see him, but the upper class people are out there to see him as well. Then it mentions Idumea, which was an area beyond the Jordan River, as well as other areas beyond the Jordan, mostly were Gentile, as well as Tyre and Sidon. So it's not just Jewish people who are coming to see Jesus. It's all kinds of people. In fact, this crowd was probably very, very diverse. I mean, they couldn't be any more different. The one thing that holds them all in common is this curiosity about Jesus. It seems to me, though, that one of the things Mark is doing in this short passage of Scripture, verses 7 to 12, is he's trying to help us see the scope and the tension of Jesus' ministry. If you go back to chapter 2, the focus there is on the conflict Jesus is having with the Pharisees. You know, back and forth, there, there's constantly a butting of heads there. It's almost like Mark drops this section into his gospel to remind us that, yes, although conflict is boiling, there's still a lot of excitement about Jesus. There's a vibrancy around him. And again, it's hard to even capture with words. I'm sure you've had this experience sometime in your life where you try and tell somebody a story about something that happened to you, and you're trying to get them in the moment and get them to feel like what it actually was like, and they're just not getting it. And finally, you just give up and you say, you had to be there. I saw this week, you know, there was a historic uh, election held in Virginia the gubernatorial election, and I was watching some of the return on that. And there was a lady who was at the uh, winning candidate at the celebration party, and she said, uh, this is unbelievable. You don't even know how electric, electric it is right now in this room. She's trying to convey, there's this excitement that I can't get across through a TV screen to you. You're just going to have to believe me. That's what I feel like Mark is doing here. He's saying, listen, there was such excitement around Jesus. I can't really put it into words. You had to be there. But I want you to grasp that even though conflict is boiling, so is excitement. It's almost like everything is in this giant pot and it's about to explode, which is coming here in the Gospel of Mark very soon. A lot of excitement about Jesus, but not a lot of following. The disciples were told to have a small boat ready just in case the crowds became too dense and were trying to crush him. You know, what made Jesus so popular? I think the answer is in verses 10 through 12. People who came to him wanted to be healed. They were oppressed by demons. They were freed. Again, we see Jesus silences the demons here who know who he is. You know, his testimony will not be established by them but by the Father. But I want to focus on the crowds themselves. You know, here they are. They're coming to Jesus. They're pressing in. They're wanting to be touched by him. And it seems to me that they're interested in Jesus because of their needs. They're pressing in around Jesus because of something they get out of it. It's not there because they love the Lord. 
They're not there because they love Jesus, committed to him. They're there because they get something out of it. Again, this is the heart of man, isn't it? We oftentimes go to the Lord or go to really anything in terms of, well, what do I get out of it? And these crowds are going to continue to follow Jesus as long as it gives them something. Whether it's an emotional experience or whether it's some concrete healing. But when things get tough, the crowd gets going. They don't stick around with Jesus when the hard times come. You see, even though the crowds are thronging around him, and and they certainly probably said they loved Jesus, they don't represent true discipleship. There's no genuine commitment on their part. They are fair-weather followers of Christ. They want Jesus for what he gives them. Again, I see that a lot with people today. Some people will even tell you that they love the Lord. Or they'll even tell you, oh yeah, I, I pray all the time. But practically speaking, the Lord is just an appendage to their life at most. You know, people kind of call out to the Lord when they think they have some need or something's going wrong in their life. But as soon as that changes, back to life as usual. There's no genuine commitment to Christ. It's just, he's nice to have around when things are tough. And that's where a lot of people are. And I fear for such people because I think they're effectively inoculated against the gospel. They have enough church, they have enough religious lingo, they have enough knowledge to think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good. You know, no need to share the gospel with me. I know what you're talking about. But practically speaking, they're not followers of Jesus. They're only in it for what they get. And ultimately they lack a true commitment to Christ, which I think is one of the key elements of discipleship. Following Jesus requires genuine commitment. Are we genuinely committed to Christ? Would anybody recognize that about our lives? That following Christ means more than the other stuff. Following Christ means more than all those other things. See, genuine commitment is a mark of a true disciple. The second lesson I want to draw out here is that intimacy with Christ is key to discipleship. Intimacy with Christ is key to discipleship. So Jesus is with the crowds and healing them. But then in verses 13 through 19, where we're going to spend most of our time, deals with his disciples, the 12. What exactly does it mean to be a disciple? Well, it means having a wonderfully close and personal intimacy with Christ. Maybe we should just stop for a minute and realize how amazing that is. That we can have a relationship with Jesus right here, right now. We can understand what it is to be close to him. And perhaps it's something we might admit is sometimes missing from our experience as disciples. Sometimes... Intimacy with Christ is, well, it's, let's just say it's not that close. It's easy to slip into a mode of thinking and viewing our life as disciples or following Christ as kind of being a Christian. What we do. I'm a Christian, so I go to church. I'm a Christian, so I serve others. I'm a Christian, so I give generously. 
and on and on we could go. But being a disciple of Jesus means more, means more than just doing. It's about being. It's about having a relationship with Christ and walking in fellowship with him. The next scene that unfolds here in starting verse 13 concerns the calling of the disciples, the official selection of who would become known as the Twelve. It's obvious, well, to me, that it teaches some basic lessons about discipleship, including this one. Intimacy with Christ is key. Let's look at verse 13. And, and he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to, those, to him those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So we see in verse 13 that Jesus arose and went to this mountain. Now it's not said here, but in the other gospels we're told that he goes there to pray and he prays all night concerning the selection of the disciples. By the way, Jesus often is going away to spend time with the Father. That in itself should be a model for disciples, isn't it? Intimacy with God matters. Jesus took the time for it. Here he goes up onto this mountain, and and mountains were often important places. They were one place where Jesus could go to get alone. For instance, whenever he goes for the Mount of Transfiguration, they go up on a mountain where they're away from the crowds, away from the people, and God shows them the glory of Christ, the disciples who are there. Here he goes up on the mountain, he calls these disciples to him, and he appointed the twelve. Now we're going to see the names of the twelve here in just a minute. But up to this point, Jesus had followers. Close-knit group of people who followed Jesus around, and unlike the crowds, they were committed to him. Walking with him. Learning from him. But their position with Christ is about to become official here. Because up until that point, they were just hanging around with Jesus. And undoubtedly, Jesus had told them, follow me, and I'll make your fishers of men. But now it's going to become official. He's going to appoint 12 men who are going to be commissioned with a task. Notice, though, how it begins. Verse 14, he appointed the 12. Why? For what reason did he appoint them? That they might be with him. That is a central phrase, to be with him. And that's the idea I want to talk about first. Being with Christ. What does that mean exactly? Well, that's a key element of discipleship. It seems one of the, I mean, the first reason that Mark gives for why Jesus chose 12 is so that they could be with him. Now, why was it so important that they be with Christ? Well, Jesus had special plans for these 12 men. It is through their testimony, through the oral testimony that they shared, as well as the written testimony we have in Scripture, the entire world would hear about the greatest news ever told. So they had to be with him if they were going to be eyewitnesses of those events. They needed to be with Jesus so they would have something to share with the world, that they saw these things firsthand. However, this matter of being with Christ... I think as an aspect of discipleship, which is more than just a front row seat to the greatest life ever. I believe it was somewhat of a transforming experience. They knew Jesus personally, closely. They watched how he responded to a bitter insult. They saw with what compassion he received the sick and the hurting. They saw the grace which he showed to sinners. They witnessed the conviction 
with which he spoke the truth. The purpose of being with him is that they would follow his example. And in following it, their lives would begin to reflect the life of Jesus. It would only happen by being close to Christ. By being with him, they would eventually become like him. I was mowing our lawn yesterday afternoon, hopefully for the last time in this season. We'll see. But as I'm going around, there's different spots in the yard that I have to get to. There's one area where it's right by the house. In order to to mow that spot of grass, I always, every every week this has happened over the entire summer, I kind of, I always brush up against the siding of the house. And every time I do, there's this like almost white, chalky, dusty stuff that gets all over my arm. Uh, I just from the house, I guess. I never really even notice it until after the fact. Usually it's when I'm putting the mower away, and I look down, and there's this white, chalky dust on my arm. I just brush it off. You know, we have a little expression sometimes about people that they rub off on you. You know, you live closely to somebody, and you get that dust on your arm. You just can't help it because you're just that close to them. Their personality, their sense of humor, their style, their mannerisms... We pick that up when we're around people, like it or not, whether they're good things or bad things. When Jesus says, I'm appointing 12 to be with me, he's going to rub off on them. That's the intention. The more time they spend with Jesus, the more like Jesus they end up looking. Jesus so rubs off on his disciples that in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin. And the the Jewish leaders look at them, and here's what the Bible says in Acts 4. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated and untrained men. They marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. All those years of being with Christ rubbed off on these guys. So much so that when the Sanhedrin looked at them, they said, this guy looks like Jesus. It's, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes, especially if the light hits them a certain way. You know, they, they talked and acted like Jesus. I wonder if we spend enough time with Christ that we really end up looking like him. You may say, well, we don't have Jesus like the disciples did. You're right. That's why I want to talk about the means of being with Christ. See, God has given us a way for us to experience intimacy with the Lord. And this is nothing too profound It begins with prayer. Prayer is an access we have to spending time with the Lord, engaging with God. Now, it's not always evident by the way we pray, but prayer is meant to be a means of fellowship. Look at Christ. Look at the Gospels. We see him spending time with the Father. I mean, he most likely mentioned prayer requests to the Father, but the purpose was more for intimacy It was more for fellowship with the Father. He loved God and wanted to communicate with his Father. I think uh, we're tempted at times to see prayer kind of like a Christmas list. You know, it's about that time of year. Kids are drawn up all over this country and probably around the world. Their list, here's what I want for Christmas. And let's just say it's not all too personal, is it? I mean, if you have a grandkid that comes to you and says, here's my Christmas list, thrusts it to you, and on it is all the stuff they want this Christmas. 
Now imagine that same grandchild comes to you and says, you know, without a list in hand, says, hey, I just want to spend the day with you. You know, one of those is fellowship. One is just give me, give me. Sometimes our prayers look a little more like Christmas lists in terms of, here, God, this is what I want. Can you do this for me? Thank you. Bye. Whereas prayer ought to be us in fellowship with the Lord. Again, do we spend time in prayer in such a way that Jesus would rub off on us at all? Prayer is an opportunity for us to be with Christ. And then secondly, Scripture. We have this two-way street. Again, this is not anything you've never heard before. But this two-way street of prayer and scripture is how we know Christ. I suppose as we, uh, as we approach scripture, um, you know, I, really, I really appreciate the fact that God is not overly complex about this. You know, how do we draw near to him? How do, we, how do we get to know Christ? Well, in prayer and through the word. Now, if Jesus were a dead historical figure, uh, the Gospels would just provide a history lesson. That's it. But since Jesus is alive, and we have a relationship with him through salvation, when we read the Gospels, when we study his word, he is speaking to us. This is how we get to know Christ. Even our study of Mark here is helpful, because as we go through the book, it's, you get to see Jesus. You see his compassion. You see his love. You see him. And isn't that compelling to you? Don't you want to be like him? And the more time we spend in God's word, listening to his voice, the more we are with him, the more we become like him. Consider the testimony of a man named Arthur Flake. This is what he writes. When I first became a Christian, I lived in New York City, and boy, did I feel lonely. I had to give up the crowd I was running with and form new friendships. I was advised by the man who led me to Christ to read the Bible. After business hours, I would go to my room and read the Bible, often for hours at a time. Though I did not understand all that I read, and I still do not, I did understand much of what I read, and it made me feel that I was not alone, but that I had a dear friend who cared for me. Today I read the same identical verses and chapters I read then. And although I've read many of them hundreds of times, they are, I believe, sweeter today than they were then. What other book can we read with such results? I'm really impacted by his statement in the middle that as he's reading the scriptures, he doesn't understand everything in there. None of us do. But he said, I did feel that I have a dear friend who cares for me. I think that's something that ought to be a result of our reading of Scripture, is that we are with Christ. We experience fellowship with him in the word through prayer. Intimacy is key to discipleship. Do we have that? Are we spending time with Jesus? Lesson number three, though. Disciples carry out the mission of God. Disciples carry out the mission of God. They carry out what Jesus came to do. The appointing of the twelve to the role of apostles here is for a specific reason. As Jesus' ministry progressed and opposition continued to form against him, these twelve would be the official delegates to carry his message to the world. Again, look at verses 14. 
Then he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. Notice in these verses, Jesus is appointing them to do exactly what he was doing. What was Jesus doing at this point in his ministry? Well, he's preaching, healing, casting out demons. We just saw that in verses 7 to 12. Now he's going to have the disciples do that. His ministry would extend to the apostles really in two main areas. Number one, in spreading the good news. He says it there in 14. Send them out that they might preach. That they might preach. Jesus so far has been the one who's been doing the preaching. The disciples, for the most part, have been listeners. The term disciple, by the way, means listener or hearer. But Jesus never meant for disciples to remain hearers forever. Yes, disciples are always growing and growing deeper, But at some point, they've got to be involved in the process of passing along what they've learned. Preaching. The word preach here means to proclaim, to herald openly, to share what has been shared, the good news of Jesus. By the way, the task here is not different for us today. Yes, the apostles in some ways are unique, as we're about to see. But disciples are meant to... Go out in the name of Christ and proclaim the good news, spreading the truth. As I already said at the beginning, a disciple is a lifelong follower of Jesus who embraces obedience to Christ while actively multiplying himself and others. That's how he does it, by preaching the good news. That's how we multiply ourselves. It's more than evangelism, yes, but it's not less than evangelism. It involves sharing the good news. There's a second component to their mission, though. Not only are they spreading the good news, they're showing Christ-like compassion. Showing Christ-like compassion. Not only would they preach, but they would have power to heal sickness and cast out demons. We see that in the Gospels and Acts, that the 12 and later the 70 were sent out to heal, to cast out demons. Now, the miraculous components of Jesus' ministry would be performed by the apostles in order to confirm and approve of the divine character of their message. However, the sign gifts are temporary. They passed away with time. And after the foundation was laid, they were really no longer needed. So, does verse 15 have nothing to do with us as disciples? No. We may not be able to heal anybody, with a miraculous touch. We may not cast out any demons, but those were, in a way, a a means of expressing Jesus' compassion. I mean, when Jesus healed people, it wasn't just to confirm that he was a divine healer. It did that. But Jesus also healed because he had compassion on people. He cared about people. Disciples carry out Jesus' mission, which includes helping those in need. We may not be able to lay hands on someone and heal them, but we, we can give a cup of cold water to somebody. We can stop and listen to someone's story. We can help somebody who's struggling. We can share with those who are less fortunate. We demonstrate the character and the heart of Christ. That's part of what a disciple does. Sharing in the mission that God has Determined, The sharing of good news, showing compassion as Jesus did. But let me quickly move to a fourth lesson. 
Lesson number four, discipleship does not demand impressive credentials. Discipleship does not demand impressive credentials. Yes, following Jesus does mean that we should be constantly growing, constantly changing, becoming more like Christ. But it doesn't mean that you have to be a university professor or a pastor or an academic. Discipleship is not for the upper class exclusively or any class exclusively. In fact, during Jesus' lifetime, the cultural elites of his day mostly were unbelievers. Those who followed him were fishermen and average people. Actually, the people who followed him were a very diverse group, which is what we see starting in verse 16. Let me read through these names, and then we'll go back and talk about them. Verse 16, these are who he chose. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who was betrayed him, who would also betray him. And they went into a house. So let me walk through this list very quickly because we could spend a lot of time with each of these people. But at the head of the list is Simon, which the text says Jesus gave him the name Peter. By the way, he's at the head of every list of disciples in the New Testament. He's always the first one mentioned, which probably implies that he was something of a leader among the disciples. Jesus even said, you are the rock and on this rock I will build my church. And so... In some ways, he is a leader amongst the disciples. Um, But again, we know more about Peter than any of the other of the 12, do we? He speaks up more often. He frankly puts his foot in his mouth more often than all the other disciples combined. More is said about Peter than anyone else. Certainly as a standout. I mean, he's probably, not to mention, he's also likely the narrator of the Gospel of Mark. Mark, the author, is getting this story directly from the testimony, eyewitness testimony of Peter. So at the top of this list, you have this impetuous, outspoken fisherman who was something of a leader among the others. And what an interesting character to study, Simon Peter. But beyond him, we have James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Here, we have some more biographical info Uh, Another reason that some people think that Peter is behind the Gospel of Mark is these lists of the disciples contains more uh, nicknames, if you will, for the disciples than any others. Probably because Peter was, you know, he was there from day one and he knew all the little things that people got called. And Jesus called these two men Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Apparently, James and John, despite the fact that John is known to to us today as the apostle of love, apparently these two guys were pretty boisterous people, pretty loud. And there's some evidence of that in the Gospels themselves. Sons of thunder. They certainly made a racket wherever they went. Uh, These two fiery guys were probably younger than the other disciples, at least some of the other disciples probably were a bit of a handful. Then you have Andrew, the Bible says in verse uh, 17, excuse me, 18, the beginning of 18, Andrew, just mentioned by name. He, by the way, was the brother of Peter. So we have two sets of brothers here, at least. 
James and John and Peter and Andrew. Andrew, somewhat more in the background compared to his brother. Then you have Philip. Again, less prominent than the top four or five of the apostles. But Philip seems to be a very calculating person. If you look at all the references to him in the Gospels, he seems like he's a very, uh, always thinking about the numbers. He was also very instrumental in introducing others to Christ. Philip is oftentimes introducing others. By the way, what a great testimony of the disciples. Here's the guy. He's not center stage. He's rarely talked about in the Gospels, and yet he's always saying, hey, let me introduce you to somebody. I want you to meet Jesus. Then you have Bartholomew, who also went by the name Nathaniel, which means God-given. He was brought to Christ by Philip, probably a friend of his, and Nathaniel was the Galilean who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth when he heard about Jesus? Then you've got Matthew, or Levi as he's called. We've read about him in Mark's gospel. He was a tax collector, a turncoat, a traitor to his nation. How are these guys going to get along? Some burly fishermen, this tax collector, not a good recipe for unity. Then you've got Thomas. And poor Thomas, he always gets associated with the doubting, right? He's the one who doubted the vision of Jesus at the upper room. And even though it may be unfair to call him doubting Thomas, he always seems to be the one who has the downcast disposition. However, this we can say about Thomas. His loyalty to Christ is very, very strong when we see him. You have Thomas, and then James, the son of Alphaeus, and really... Very little is said in, in the New Testament about James, the son of Alphaeus. Um, you know, by the way, James must have been a pretty popular baby name that year, I guess, because there's a lot of Jameses in the New Testament. He's also known by the name Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas who's part of there. James, Judas, whatever they called him, is a less prominent character than many of the others. You have Thaddeus and... You also have uh, Bartholomew, or excuse me, uh, Simon. Simon here is referred to in my Bible as the Canaanite, but a lot of translations will say Simon the Zealot. Some people believe he belonged to a group called the Zealots, which were radical, anti-Roman, almost like a terrorist group. But whether or not he was part of that group is hard to say. Perhaps the term Zealot just described his personality. He was a zealous person. And then, of course, at the end of the list, and always at the end, is Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him. And by the way, Judas provides a lot of interesting discipleship lessons as well. We're not going to get into them today. But let me just say, if you look at this list, it's not hard to see that this is an interesting cross-section of humanity here. These are people who probably, well, some of them may have had much in common, but others not. What united these people? Uh, Some people have referred to them as a ragtag bunch of misfits. Point is, they were not chosen on the basis of their credentials. Jesus didn't go around choosing, okay, here's the people who are most likely to succeed. That's who I want. Instead, it seems that Jesus chose them not because of what they could contribute, but because what they could become. Bill Hull, who has written a lot on discipleship, says this about the disciples here of Jesus. 
What a kaleidoscope of humanity. The list of men is not meant to be held up as the model of perfection. Rather, these disciples are a promise. A promise to you and me that he can and will use us. We are just like these men, and they are like us. The point of these disciples is to show that discipleship is not about impressive credentials. You may look at yourself and say, well, there's nothing too impressive about me. Don't think that that disqualifies you from God using you and being a disciple of Jesus. God uses all types of people in all types of ways. So many lessons to be drawn out of here, but let me end on this one. That God does not require impressive credentials. Earlier this week, uh, on Wednesday nights, we've been doing a brief study on the history of missions. Particularly looking at people in the history of missions who have been real uh, difference makers. This past Wednesday, we were talking about a young lady named Mary Slessor. She was born in 1848 in Scotland. And I will tell you this. If you looked at her profile... You would not think to yourself, wow, here is a lady who will become a a famous missionary and go deeper into the African continent than any single woman had ever done. Because she was born in Scotland in 1848. By the time she was 10 years old, back during the Industrial Revolution, she was already at work in a factory. By the time she was 14 years old, she was working uh, 10-hour days. Her father was an alcoholic, almost completely absent from the family. She had every disadvantage you can imagine. But the Lord took this young Mary Slessor and he gave her a heart for world missions. She went eventually to Africa, despite all of the things that were against her, all the lack of credentials, we could say. And as a young single missionary lady was able to travel up the Calabar River in a way that men couldn't. Men were, men were threatening to the African tribes up the river and many of them would be killed. She wasn't. And as she went up, she lived out her discipleship in that corner of the world. She showed the compassion of Christ by adopting twins who would otherwise be killed because of pagan superstitions. She shared the gospel of Christ with people. And she experienced intimacy with the Lord as she served him in that remote part of the world. You see, if God can use a Mary Slessor, if he can use a Simon Peter, if he can use a James the son of Alphaeus, then he can use you. He can use me. We can be disciples, not not because we fit into some certain subsection of humanity that is somehow worthy or has something to offer, We are useful when we are the Lord's. So as we think about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple, I encourage you to take these lessons learned from Mark chapter 3. And remember these, that we draw near to the Lord, that we are with him, that we carry on his mission. Again, God is pleased to use the weak things of this world to shame even the wise.